Today we talk to Paul Dowling, founder of Mindstream AI, about the importance of support structures in the form of ecosystems for startups. Aside from a gazillion other activities, he also co-leads KQ Labs, a premium health tech accelerator in the heart of London. In 45 minutes, we only just scratched the surface of Paul's deep knowledge and intuition of all things futuristic, but it only transpired afterwards that Paul is also an aspiring artist. So I've put the link in the episode description. Please do check it out. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and find it useful. This is the Startup Talker podcast, and my name is Manish Patel. If you like what you're listening to, please check out the Just Giving link in the description and donate to Prostate Cancer UK. Enjoy. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for sparing the time. Um, so tell me, why are ecosystems so important to you? Thanks, Manish. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, I think the reason why ecosystems are so important is that um, it's fundamentally very difficult to create a startup. Um, and startups need a lot of support. And uh, therefore, um, it's very important that uh, you know, the various uh, elements of an ecosystem are present. And I think that means really access to capital. It probably means that there has to be at least one uh, large corporate organization. You know, going back to Silicon Valley days, it was somebody like Hewlett Packard. Um, it, it also means there has to be a good, some good universities uh, putting out, you know, bright people and so on and so on. So, yeah, I think it's very important these elements are, um, are there. And if they're not there, they have to be uh, attracted, basically. So are those US ones that you mentioned, Hewlett-Packard and, and what's happening in Silicon Valley? Is that, is that what sort of prompted you on to this? We'll, we'll get on to what you actually do, but uh, is that what prompted you on to this, um, this path? Yeah, I think the, the, the reason I got involved, I, first of all, I, I had a corporate background and um, I guess my last uh, real job was uh, Capgemini in, in, around about year 2000. And um, I kind of got the startup bug and uh, you know, I, I saw, you know, saw how attractive startups were. And actually I didn't have my own startup idea, uh, but I, I decided I wanted to be part of that. And I put, put the way to get involved really was to, to get involved in ecosystem and actually in building ecosystems. And I guess over the time that's become more and more ambitious. And, you know, initially I was a, a big part of, of the Shoreditch uh, ecosystem. And there, I guess I was really a bit of a late arrival. I, you know, I was, I was, I was doing things like running events and stuff like that. Um, but when it got to the kind of deep tech revolution that we're now in, uh, I, I think I was a bit of a trailblazer in the sense that I sensed that uh, the area around uh, King's Cross was had the potential to be a global uh, ecosystem, particularly for data science and health. And really, I, I proactively decided to try and make that uh, happen. So let's let's actually let's rewind a little bit. So you said you said you you, you your last real job was was uh, in Capgemini. Um, how do you get from corporate world? I think you're a salesperson before, weren't you? You were you were, you were in sales or, or something like this or BD. Uh, how do you get from there to to startups? Well, actually, let's just go back even further. How do you get what 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 made Paul Paul after leaving school, going into corporate world, that then led on to startups? 
<laughs> well, yeah, well, actually, yes, I do have a quite an unusual background. I mean, first thing I should say is I, I actually left school at 17 uh, wow. with, uh, without any, uh, without some fundamental qualifications. That's fairly unusual. It's uh... Well, yes, I, I actually managed to fail both my uh, English and math. <laughs> GCEs, which I, it was a bit unusual. So well, I think what that does is it kind of makes you, uh, you know, it makes you quite um, proactive in, in, in managing things after that point. You really, you really have to kind of survive. And of course, one of the, uh, the, one of the best ways to do that is to, to get into sales. Um, because you don't, you don't need uh, formal qualifications to be a good salesman. And, um, and that was my big break. Um, I, I managed to make some very big uh, technology sales actually very early on in my career. I, um, I, I sold the, world, the world's first large liquid crystal display at, a, at the railway station, which was Paddington Station. Which was actually a high-profile sale in every way that you could look at it, because it was a, a whacking great uh, twenty-meter liquid crystal display board above the, which, which was in everybody's sight, and, uh, and 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 that was my big break. I I then went on to you know to to build that kind of business um, for a corporate um, uh, for the next uh, five or ten years, and um, that really uh, I, I I then became an expert actually in in that field and and that's when I, I actually made a switch to management consulting um, and, and I became a kind of cross between a salesman and a management consultant for Capgemini um, and that was because I had such good knowledge of the transport sector um, that I've been selling to for, for 10 years basically. So what was it about that about that role that you think um, inspired you or 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 actually made that made it more amenable to to get into the startup world i mean you, you said you said you said you said you got the startup bug what was it about that role that made you that pushed you that in that direction okay i i mean there's, there's a couple of things i think the first thing is that, that throughout my career i've really always been interested in in new stuff i mean that's why i sold the, the world's first liquid crystal mm -hmm. um and and i've you know there's been several points in my career where i've kind of been a been a first um i think that's pretty well because i i don't really like business as usual um i, I just i just like change and i just like sort of uh, I, I implementing change I, I i fundamentally just get bored if i'm doing the same thing every day um but specifically within cap gemini the thing that kind of gave me the nudge was that uh, we actually i got myself into a into a really quite quite interesting team that was doing different stuff so it was a strategic deals team um and we were kind of imagining the future and as part of that we um we got into a, a joint venture between Capgemini and, and Vodafone around uh, a mobile, uh, you know, the future of mobile um, technology. And we were visualizing things that were the kind of precursors of Uber and stuff like that. So when you was know? this? Was this pre-smartphone, I guess? Uh, yes. I mean, this was, uh, this was in, in approximately the year 2000. And so it was okay. kind of phones and stuff like that and we had all the all, all, all the stuff that's now an app we we were kind of talking about in those days but it was a bit early and uh, it was uh, and the technology wasn't really there I mean some of it came through actually funny enough uh, Shazam was around uh, oh, right. 
<laughs> we had a Shazam team member on our team. Um, so anyway, we did, the idea was for um, Vodafone and Capgemini to come up with these kind of novel solutions. And it really was like a startup. I mean, so what happened was, you know, t t 20 people from each side, you know, got into a separate entity um, and we acted like a startup. And, and actually it was a bit like a startup creating startups because each of these applications uh, was a kind of startup in its own right. And so that's what gave me the startup bug. And then, so I finally then did the big thing, which was kind of getting out of corporate life and, and, and um, you know, fending for myself really in the startup world. And that's what I've done ever since really. So was it, so was it in that sort of incubator kind of stage at Capgemini where you started getting the initial ideas around uh, the requirement to have a good local, physically local ecosystem uh, to support startups and what that might, what shape that might take and what those things would actually be. I guess it was coming out of uh, Cap, at Capgemini um, with the idea that I didn't have my own startup idea. And actually what I created was a startup platform. Um, so actually I did, so I ended up having a, a tech startup to help tech startups because it was a platform. It wasn't particularly sophisticated, but it was a kind of Facebook for startups. And um, actually in terms of numbers, it was quite a big success. I mean, we probably had more startups than any platform uh, existing at the time, in, in certainly in Europe uh, on the platform, um, but it was difficult to monetize. Um, the, the startups would join the platform. They would get, get themselves a rating we would probably run a lot of events and workshops for them, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, as you know, startups don't pay. Uh, and so you end up actually with the accelerator model um, because you, you start to realize that what you have to do is you have to go to large organizations to, to gain sponsorship, to, to support the startups. And that's kind of where the accelerator model comes in. And you mentioned actually, so, so what, what was that called, the, the platform that you had? Was so, that part of Capgemini or was that something separate? No, no, that was so. I, so I created a company called Dreamstake. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. And it was a kind of precursor of uh, the idea was that it might become a crowdfunding platform. Mm -hmm. um, it was the early days, and you know, Cedars didn't even exist as, uh, that uh, in those days. Um, and uh, I think Crowdcube had just started. Um, and I did uh, at the time believe that there was a, something to be done around a kind of democratization of capital. And, and, and so, yeah, very successful in actually getting the startups involved. We used to run probably more events out of Google campus than anybody else in London. Um, it got up to around about six a month or something like that. It was just crazy. Okay. And, yeah. No, no, go, go, go. And I was just going to say, and, 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 it, and it did kind of function as the kind of disaggregated uh, accelerator, uh, accelerator program in the sense that the startups joined, they got, they got workshops. Um, if they were lucky, they got introduced to investors and so on and so on. So it was kind of a very, it was inspired really by Y Combinator and AngelList, which were the two big platforms of the, of the day in the US. And yeah. uh, I had the rather ambitious idea of trying to kind of combine the two uh, into a kind of virtual accelerator model. But uh, I think it, latterly I've come to the conclusion that, that a lot of this stuff can't be done on platforms. It, uh, or it's probably the market's not ready quite yet for that. Understood. So the, you've mentioned something just sort of in passing twice now in, uh, and I don't know if you realize you said it, but you, you said you were perhaps a too early for uh, 
your your tech was too early for for the market in terms of crowd sort of a crowdfunding kind of thing, um, and I think you mentioned it before um, in, in with respect to the deep tech re uh, revolution and working on new stuff. Um, is there a danger that when you work with startups as part of an accelerator, you you tend to see well either companies that don't have workable ideas or companies that are just too ahead of their time they're not not quite the market is not quite ready to take up that deep technology um and and actually make make good use of it do you see that often or is that is that not really a thing i think it is i, I think it's a general i don't think it's a thing that's particularly associated with accelerators because in a way i think what accelerators do is they kind of moderate that slightly because by the fact that you have a selection process etc you know, you get some sensible, sensible people in the in, in in the room, uh, and and that probably defines what you what you actually what comes into the accelerator. I think it's more a problem of just uh, uh, you know getting involved in the tech scene in general. And I I, I and I do uh, I am guilty of this. You know, I, I I got very excited by distributed ledger probably six years ago. I mean, a long long time ago. And yeah. uh, you know, so I think there's a couple of times where I've really been a little bit too early on the scene um, and it's debate I mean at the moment I mean I'm very involved with quantum computing and, and it's debatable about you know whether I'm too early for this but it's, it, it just depends on what you define as too early and it's, if, yeah, it's mean, a big debate isn't it yeah I mean it's a quantum computing is classic classic example and I know your son is in is into in, into quantum and um, it, this particular technology has has the potential to to revolutionize the way we do things but is it really workable at the moment? Do you do you let's take let's take quantum computing as an actual example? Do you see do you see that actually coming in turning into something in the next five years? It probably is about that that time scale. You know, it is five years. But the, the the problem is, I suppose, that you need a a lead up, and uh, you know, quantum computing uh, software companies are already attractive to investors, and you know, and they and in a way they they need to be because you know it's not going to come from nowhere. You, it's not going to you can't kind of wait five years and then suddenly you know burst onto the scene. That's, that's how things work. Um, so I would say that um, quantum is regarded a, a lot like health startups, I would say, that the investors kind of realize that there's a long lead time, um, but because they see the, ma the massive potential at the end of the, the line, they, you know, they are getting investment, I think, for people are investing in quantum. So, um, so from a personal point of view, whether you get involved, I think, you know, if you're if you're if you're if you're trying to make a commercial gain by um, tackling a specific use case, like let's say quantum drug discovery, uh, you've probably got a long wait before you actually you know are revenue uh, generating. But you can still be having a lot of excitement along the way. You know, you can be getting investment into your startup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to be doing. It's just that there. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of time lag uh, involved. And then I suppose the other point is you've got to be aware that which side of the um, valley of death you're on. I, I think, I think in the, in, in, in my, my, the mistake with probably with distributed ledger was I got involved so early that it, that it, 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 it still had yet to go through the valley of death sort of thing. And so there was a kind of period of uh, you know, two or three years when you know nothing was happening at all uh you know and now it's coming and now it's probably coming back for real um but yeah and, and and that's even i think it's even more difficult to predict to be honest in quantum computing 
very much like AI actually, because neural networks and AI was a thing for for a number of years up to the early two thousands, early two thousands, um, and then just nothing until fairly recently, right? And then the whole the whole thing is launched again in 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 healthcare. Are you actually seeing? a lot more quantum slash AI slash deep tech in general coming into the healthcare space because I know you're that's we'll come on to KQ Labs in a sec, but I know that's kind of your um your baby at the moment, isn't it? So are you are you seeing a lot more those type of companies coming onto the scene or is it more traditional physical tech, medical device tech? Other. No, no, I think I think there is much more. I mean, I think it's a very uh, vibrant market that has um, exploded because of COVID nineteen. Uh, nineteen, I, I I would say, um, you know, so it's really when investors start getting interested uh, that you know stimulates this. I think startups will always appear uh, if there's uh, capital available, um, and uh, and I think that's what's happened. I think during COVID, you know, people have realised that there's a market for this for this this sort of stuff, and uh, yeah, so we were kind of fortunate that uh, you know one of the good things to come out of the COVID nineteen crisis is that we are sitting here in a in a in a buoyant market in a in in, in probably geographically, um, you know, we're 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 obviously in. The Golden Triangle, and um, particularly in, around King's Cross, we're in a, an area that you know is just bustling with uh, opportunity. Well, that's that's a that's a good point. So, um, one of the things about the ecosystems that you you described around King's Cross when when we first met um, was that you were saying, well, in this in this small area, we have Google, we have uh, Microsoft, we have, you know, all sorts of other companies that are all there to, that could incubate and support startups in, in, in a myriad different ways. Um, how, has ha- how has that changed over the last year, given that most people are working from home? You know, they're slowly starting to come back, obviously. Uh, but how, has that actually changed anything? Um, yeah, that, that's a really good question. I, I, I think maybe it's kind of illustrated um, how kind of physical proximity maybe wasn't as important as people thought. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, of, of course, the, the crick sits next to the Turing and, and, and next to DeepMind, and probably you needed that kind of stimulus at the early days if that hadn't existed, you know, a, a couple of years ago or five years ago. Mm. Um, maybe you wouldn't have had a base to start from. But I, actually, I think once you'd kind of established the base, I think what we learned uh, during the COVID crisis was actually there, would, there was a, an awful lot you could do um, once you'd kind of triggered those uh, anchor organizations to work in a in a virtual way. And I think I think the accelerator model uh, kind of without the accelerator model, that would have been hard. I think there would have just been a lot of disjointed organizations. But I think because the accelerator model is actually, you know, uh, taken off, um, you know, people are running those virtually and they and it is and it, and they, and it is working well. How, how do you convince those Big names. I mean, you you, you dropped uh, Turing there, the Crick. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Google was in is in that area as well. How do you convince those guys to um, be part of that network and to be part of that support framework? What do they get out of it? 
I, I, I think it's, um, I, I think the great thing about startups is they're kind of neutral ground for these organizations. So it's kind of like, why wouldn't you, uh, why wouldn't you help startups? It gives you access to innovation. It, you, you get seen as a good guy. So you kind of, you know, you might have uh, future acquisitions. It might help you with Acquihire. Uh, it's, it's almost like there are three reasons why you, why you, why you should do it. And also not too much politics about why you shouldn't do it. You know, it's quite hard, for example, to make a suggestion that uh, the Crick should uh, do, a, a, do, a, do a joint venture with Google at a corporate level. Um, that, there's a lot of politics involved in that, you know, questions like why and who owns the IP and all of those sort of questions. And so those kind of big strategic deals are really hard to do. But actually to say, look, Google, why don't you pop in and do a workshop for the startups, you know, next, next month uh, to, to help these guys along the way? It, it, it's not a big, it's not a big ask, um, and and I and I, I think they uh, want to be seen to be, um, you know, putting something back into the in, into the ecosystem. Um, but there is self interest involved as well. So the, I mean, we see that a lot of this in London and a lot of this in the UK in general. Um, uh, seeing a lot more of it in in some of the other cities as well. Why do you think we don't see as much uptake of this kind of collaboration in Europe, for example? And Germany is a bigger economy than the UK, for example. More of a population, um, probably more access to funding potentially, but the numbers just don't stack up. And the more there are more tech startups in London alone um, than than the rest of Europe in its entirety. Why do you think that the same thing doesn't exist? Is that is that another ecosystem problem? Do you think? Um, I, I I think one has to ask why. Yeah, why why did why did the UK establish uh, ecosystems and particularly the London ecosystem? Um, and I think it really it, it it came down to governments and individuals at the time. You know, I think that uh, there was a there was a definite desire to kind of replicate the Silicon Valley model uh, in London uh, about ten years ago, um, and and then the government brought in all sorts of incentives to do that. You know, they kind of brought in the tax breaks, and in fact, they made it the they made they made the UK the easiest place to to create a startup in the world, and and, and that that had a huge impact at the time. You know, because I remember people saying like. How difficult it was in the bureaucracy to set up a startup in a, in in Paris or, or or even in Germany at the time, yeah. and it it may not have seemed like a, a big thing, but you know if if if, if somebody if another country is charging two thousand quid to kind of get your company registered, and you can do it for fifty quid in in London, and, and at that stage the startups are really really poor, um, it just it it just stimulates and. The same on the investor side, you know, we brought in that SEIS, SEIS you know, investor tax breaks, etc. Um, so I think it was, uh, I would give some some credit to the, you know, to the, to the governments of the time um, for recognising this. And, I, and they did a massive signalling job on London. I mean, they basically said it was Tech City before it was Tech City and, yeah. uh, and, and, then, and then started to kind of pile some um some some resources and also some kind of um messaging around that and 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 it became a self-fulfilling prophecy actually it, and and that that's the reason i think we just we just got that kind of that startup bug before other before other countries did and now the others are 
are trying to play catch up all the time and uh, you know berlin it would 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 be doing that yeah um do you think do you think therefore brexit will have a will have an impact on how that transpires i mean we've only just gone through the legislative changes for brexit i guess so we're not quite seeing it yet but do you think that's going to change anything I, I I felt it would, but actually the, the the signs are that it probably isn't having that much impact. Just, just maybe because startups, by their you know very nature, are, are very independent, and uh, you know they they they're quite self reliant. And I f- I feel that London start the London startup scene is pretty pretty vibrant, and is trying in in a way is trying to work. It's just another problem that startups face, right? Um, it's probably the, the biggest impact in my mind is probably the lack of uh, or the difficulty in um, attracting uh, founders from you know countries like Poland or Lithuania and places like that who who were you know some of the most driven people who just came over to the UK um, don't have the qualifications to meet the government's criteria for 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 for, for, for getting jobs over here now. And therefore won't come. They'll 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 be they'll be off to Berlin or or to, or to Paris or wherever. So we will lose that group. Um, but on the other hand, we've kind of then we've moved into this cycle of deep tech founders, you know, who are coming out of uh, good, you know, probably some of the best universities in Europe. So they've kind of been replaced as a as a category, um, and it may it, it probably moves us more towards deep tech and less towards the kind of uh, consumer tech that was going on uh, a couple of years ago. So it's it doesn't it, it, it may be having an impact, but it's it, it's still booming. Let's put it that way. It's, it's really interesting because uh, the number of conversations I had around Brexit and and the effect on investment and things like this that you know we, eventually we see a dry up of. Uh, investment money coming into startups. I don't think we've seen that in the last four or five years. Um, uh, the fact that it'll be more difficult to sell into Europe, that there may be some truth in that, but I don't think the deal covers products and services and things like this anyway. Um, I guess one of the big impact areas is the regulatory space. Uh, you know, companies having to do UKCA marking rather than CE marking, but that's also actually pretty well aligned. So it looks like um there hasn't been that much of an impact yeah i think it's going to be other sectors outside the startup sector that if anybody who that's going to get hit so um and, and i think despite the fact the government probably is you know is trying to 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 move the emphasis away from let's say london startups i think despite all of that i i, I think they, those are the ones that are going to succeed and, and and it's still going to revert to the old problems of you know the heavy industries and things like that are the ones that are going to struggle because of this yeah exactly um so compared compared london to to the rest of europe same question for london versus the us i mean us generally tends to tends to kind of lead the way. And you said yourself that you wanted to replicate what's happening in Silicon Valley in terms of ecosystems. Um, at what point does do we say actually now London is leading the way um, on, on, on deep tech or do you think that's never going to happen? I, I think that what's changed is that, uh, you know, there was a point when you more or less had to go to Silicon Valley 
um, to succeed um, because the uh, ecosystem in the in the UK wasn't strong enough to support you really. And I think what's changed is though we, you know we're we're not we're not lead you know we're not leading uh, the US and and China, but I think. As a as a good third, we are we now have a strong enough ecosystem to uh, to be kind of self sustaining to a large degree. I mean, I think there's still opportunity. Clearly, any startup has to ultimately um, gain market access in other markets. Um, but it's it's different in, in the sense that you don't, you don't now have to kind of truck off to Silicon Valley in your early days. Um, and it's almost got to the point where it's kind of more difficult to do that than to do it at home, because clearly if you can kind of get the support of, of local VCs and um, local markets first, um, you, you, you can put off some of the more difficult things until slightly later. And, and um, but because the problem was with the, this whole Silicon Valley thing was that and I talked to Silicon Valley investors at the time and they used to say, and this was when I had my platform of startups. They they used to say, "Well, look, look, we're sure you've got got really good startups, Paul, on your platform. Uh, you know, you've got your own sort of candy store, but we've got a really good candy store over here in Silicon Valley, and 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 we and we don't need to look outside for 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 other startups. We've kind of got enough of our own sort of thing, and I'm and I'm pretty sure that's still pretty well true." Um, I think if anything, may, maybe um, the US Silicon Valley, I think Zoom may be uh, helping to spread, uh, in, to democratize investment to some degree, I, I think slowly, slowly but surely. So I think now where you probably can get a, a UK a VC on board, but, but if they've got contacts now in Silicon Valley, they could kind of lead a, around with Silicon Valley investors as well. It's interesting. So what I'm hearing is actually the UK is kind of keeping pace uh, uh, with the US uh, and, and perhaps China. But how do we how do we do better? How do we ensure that those ecosystems stay in place, supporting startups? What 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 does the government need to do? What do people like you need to do, and startups themselves need to do to ensure that that there's a, that continuous stream? I, I mean, I would say there are still gaps in the in the funding uh, availability of funding, and there's still um, much much more capital available uh, in in the US. Um, so I think what the, what what can be done is to try to uh, you know understand where some of those gaps lay uh, lie and 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 encourage people to um, to fill them. I, I think particularly to fill those funding gaps in 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 the, in the, the sort of gaps between. Uh, where you have, for example, data-driven health, which is a specific case, but a very big one, um, where you've got biotech investors who don't really understand the, the space, and then you've got tech investors who don't understand the space, and therefore there always needs to be a new kind of breed of VC um, to, to plug those gaps. As one of those most annoying things about those gaps in funding between the US and UK, actually, I find that I just read another thing in LinkedIn. Some company has raised five million dollars in its seed round and here in the uk raising five million pounds for a seed round is virtually unheard of you seed rounds are generally between you know 200k and, and a million so um what is it what is it about the us they, they just tend to just chuck money at almost anything that just has any kind of idea you know even before it's even got a got a proof of concept is it just a change in the change in mindset from a investor's perspective 
I think it probably is, you know, I think it probably goes way back, um, you know, to the, to the point that, that, you know, where they have a more uh, of an appetite for, for risk. I mean, I don't know whether it's just the kind of like the pioneering nature of, you know, the way the US has been built, um, uh, maybe has something to do with it. I think there is some way in which the finance is structured from the big universities and the institutional investors there. There are sources of funding in the US that, that, that kind of don't even exist in Europe. Um, and yes, and I, and I suppose it's really about how much sort of capital is, is deployed in these kind of high risk areas. Um, you know, because it's because you know, VC is still really like a cottage industry in, in relation to the rest of the finance world. So it's just a, it's a, it's a tiny asset class, right? Yeah. And you probably don't need to actually stimulate it terribly much to, to kind of you know, double the amount of VC uh, money available sort of thing. Mm, interesting. Uh, yeah, and, uh, um, but so I, think, I think we are catching up to, to, uh, in, in, in this to some degree. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear because that, that is one of those is one of those things that startups find very difficult is obviously to 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 raise cash, um, especially when they are at a stage where they think they have a good idea, they think they have a good idea of how to do their thing, whatever it is. But then it's like this chicken and egg problem: create an MVP, create a POC. Um, but you can't do that without the funding in the first place. So how do how do we solve that problem? And I guess that's where ecosystems come in. That's where that's where the support structure comes in, where you can leverage the knowledge and the resources of of the people around you, the companies around you, to to make that happen. Yes, and even small sums of money. You know, the the the, the amount of money that uh, accelerators give is not you know often massive, but it's it's useful and it's a. Uh, it's probably an alternative to kind of what used to be kind of friends, families, and fools, which was you know, <laughs> always talked about in the old days. Yeah. Um, you know, now you don't have to go begging to your family. And, uh, you know, I've always felt that was kind of a, a fairly, you know, ridiculous idea. I, 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 I always visualized going to my dad and asking for 50K or something like that for a startup. And I know what he would have said. <laughs> <laughs> um, were, you, were your parents very entrepreneurial or not? No, no, not at all. My dad was a scientist, actually. Oh, was, really? Was, uh, yeah, he was a he. You know, he had he had the PhD and and and. Uh, but uh, yeah, probably one of the least entrepreneurial people in history. He actually he actually <laughs> for forty five years uh, in in the same job. Um, so he, you know, so he, he felt <laughs> any move was a risk, you know, basically. So, so you were completely the opposite. Yeah, exactly. I I, I was. I don't know how that how it turned out that way. So let's talk about KQ Labs because that's something that is. Um, I mean, my company Jiva went through the KQ Labs process last year. It started the year before, I guess, um, and it was an amazing accelerator. I got to say, it was. It was uh, anyone who's listening, any startups that are listening that are looking to go to an accelerator, I would highly recommend. Um, KQ Labs. I think applications are open at the moment, are they? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the ecosystem and the support structure, again, it just comes down to these two things that you've established as part of this accelerator is, is, uh, is nothing short of awesome. Could you tell us a little bit more about how KQ Labs actually came about? And I'll, be, I'll have Barbara on the podcast at some point as well uh, and get her perspective, but it would be good to understand from your perspective how, how it came about and, and why you did it uh, and what opportunity you saw specifically within health. 
Yes, sure. I mean, uh, first of all, it was, I think the first accelerator that I did completely proactively. So, I mean, it really kind of just came from a kind of uh, uh, an idea that I looked around King's Cross and I thought, you know, this is an amazing uh, world-class ecosystem, but actually there are no startups here. And, and I felt, well, probably the quickest way to address that problem was to do an accelerator. And I have to say that, the, you know, the Francis Crick Institute were very uh, receptive and very kind of visionary in, in, in really to, uh, kind of taking on board the idea because they'd never, they hadn't actually heard of what an accelerator was when I first approached them. Um, and, and probably didn't know much about startups either because <laughs> they were not a startup organization. So, you know, I described really to, to them how the, um, how a model could work and how it would actually um, be a basis of, um, of, of ecosystem building right from the start. And I think that's quite unusual because people probably generally trying to create um, accelerators don't necessarily do it because they want to create an, an entire ecosystem. They just do it for the sake of the accelerator itself. But right from the start, the, uh, the cricket embraced the idea that this would be a catalyst for um, creating an ecosystem. And I think one of the things they did really well was to always want to just only convene the accelerator and not kind of own it, you know, not, it wasn't really about how to make a, a commercially uh, viable um, kind of thing that they owned um, to, to and, and that very neutral approach of the Crick um, made it very, very uh, easy for other people to, uh, to to say that they would help. And that that's what happened, you know, the, the Turing and, HDR UK, Genomics England, uh, people like Amazon and so on and so on. They all said, well, it look, it, this looks like a great program being run by a great organization. And so, you know, we're going to help. Well, um, you must have had some kind of crystal ball because healthcare now is, and well, deep tech in healthcare now is just enormous. It was kind of obvious at the time, even because I. <laughs> I, 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 the, the, what, what I did really was I said uh, that I can spot two really massive trends that actually will come together. So I could already see that AI was probably the biggest thing, uh, you know, in the, in the on the radar, and I could already see that that health was probably going to be the biggest use of AI, immediate use of AI at least. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there were a greater mind than, uh, than mine that were pretty well saying the same thing. I mean, Herman Howard at the time was, 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 was going around with this message as well. Um, and I really just kind of, you know, stole some of their ideas <laughs> and thought of what, what to do about it, if I'm honest about it. Um, yeah, so, yes, it didn't require too much of a crystal ball. But I, I, I guess what I didn't predict was I didn't predict uh, COVID-19. And of course, that has probably accelerated everything as well, uh, which would have what would have been a, a fast moving trend anyway, it's become an even faster moving trend. I mean, I've, I've definitely observed that. So the 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 occurrence of COVID, or, or, you know, on, on the flip side of it, this awful thing happening has been that uh, particularly investors and stake, other stakeholders now see the value in automation, now see the value in AI, um, and just general tech within within healthcare to alleviate the pressures that are occurring in the NHS, and I'm sure all of the healthcare systems around the world. Um, the kinds of companies you're seeing through through KQ, uh, are, they, uh, are they sort of 
deeply nested in in software and AI, or are, are you finding that you're getting a still, still a good spread of different types of companies? I I think that um, it's probably got closer to um, to the data driven aspects of it over time. Um, it's still, I think, intentionally quite broad. I mean, for example, you know, there could be a pull to, to move towards, say, AI drug discovery as a, as a typical area. But I think that the desire is still to keep it very broad. And I think what we, we always see is we're always surprised by the, uh, the, the mix that we get, uh, you know, every cohort. And, and sometimes the mix is entirely different from the mix of a previous cohort, you know. So we just get kind of complete surprises. You know, sometimes we have lots of genomics on and we've had other times with no genomics, for example. Um, but yes, those broad categories of drug, you know, AI, drug discovery, genomics, um, uh, medical imaging, and, and so on and so on, um, I think are still, uh, still a desire to keep it that broad, because I, I think I, I, I always try to advocate um, some breadth in accelerator programs, because I think that's how you get innovation, really. I think if you're too prescriptive and you go too narrow, you kind of like are already, already kind of giving the answers um, before you start the program. And it's much better in a way to kind of put out a broad, um, uh, you know, a broad criteria and then seeing what you get, because that way you kind of get surprises and you, yeah. you so I think that's a, I think accelerated design is quite important about how you how you design it and what, what you intend to do with an accelerator. And do you go from so I mean that's that's from the perspective of the the particular type of technologies and and innovations that you see within those companies. But do you apply the same kind of um, uh, uh, diversity? Do you play the same kind of kind of diversity in terms of the stage of the company? So from you know pre-seed all the way through to you know whatever uh, revenue generating um type of companies do you, do you see that's that kind of diversity also playing well into your accelerator repertoire uh yes i think so i mean i mean i think that um there's there's kind of new kid on the block in terms of accelerators which is the, the which has been termed the talent accelerator and is kind of uh, typified by um entrepreneur first you know the idea that you take single founders um, sometimes without even ideas, you know, basically saying, you know, come into a room, uh, you know, explore some ideas with others. Um, and I think that's how you kind of get the diversity across stages, because I think there's a place for, for, for talent accelerators at the very early stage. Yeah. And then I think that most of the other accelerators really follow uh, a pattern that was originally developed by y, y Combinator in the US and and people then just play different tunes on that kind of basic model you know so the tunes can be the length of the accelerator the size of the cohort the amount of money you give each startup etc um, and then uh, I think on top of that it's really about the quality of the supporting organizations uh, that can you know the, the, and the credibility of those um, and those are the kind of aspects that kind of it, it help you through you know how you decide what type of accelerator to offer in what sector uh, it's, it's usually a discussion you know with 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 with, with, with the with the client and uh, and 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 playing to their strengths really I mean you wouldn't want to do a um, you wouldn't want to do a quantum computing uh, accelerator, you know, out in out in the countryside somewhere, 
some <laughs> remote location. You, although actually, I think the government's trying to do it in Harwell, but uh, I think there, there is a, a history in Harlow anyway. But yeah, uh, yeah. In general, yeah, you want to go where the action is, basically. Would you so I mean, you look, you, you, you've achieved an incredible amount in your in your career um, to, to help startups get on their feet and, and get to somewhere um, uh, somewhere other than falling flat on their faces. Um, would you would you do this again? Would you take up another challenge and say, right, I'm going to do another type of accelerator, but outside of healthcare? And if you would, what would it be in? <laughs> Yes. Um, well, I already am. So, uh, you oh, know, okay, that's good. So it's I. So get, I, I do want to move beyond healthcare because I think that um, you know that, that healthcare now is becoming well, uh, relatively well served by accelerators. Um, there are quite a few of them. Um, I still enjoy being involved, but um, I, I, I think I, I'm looking ahead and I'm looking at, at other technologies and, and actually two areas I'm really interested in. What One I'm kind of already involved in is the quantum one. So that is going ahead with uh, UCL. Um, and then I think my second uh, big and probably real passion is something around uh, impact accelerators. Um, but this would probably be in the intersection between deep tech and uh, and and UN goals, you know, so things like using AI for climate uh, change prediction or anything around, you know, recycling and so on and so on, all of those UN goals. I'd just like to see, um, I would just like to see the technology harnessed towards those kind of good causes. And I think, again, it, it's a it's a post-COVID thing, you know, I think we all want the world to be built back uh, better, as Boris says. Um, and one of the ways to do that is to use te uh, technology in a really, uh, in a really uh, in intelligent way. Um, and so, yes, I, I'll, I'll be launching some kind of impact accelerator at some point. Is that uh, Quantum One already? Is that launched, or is that something you're just still working on? I, I, I think I can I, I can talk about it in the sense that. Uh, Go on, and plug I, it. Plug it. <laughs> It's a, it's a very little plug because I think that we will run into the, the trial with about four or five quantum uh, startups. So uh, anybody listening who's in that category, uh, please make contact. Um, but it will be very small for the first three months and then probably a, a, a full kind of call out sometime in, uh, in the autumn uh, where it will become a, a, a fully blown uh, a cohort of maybe 10 startups or something like that. So it's not far off, actually. That's fantastic. So, I mean, I find quantum such a fascinating field and I just don't get it. I get, I get like 0.1% of, of all the stuff they talk about. <laughs> so how did you get, I mean, how did you get yourself into quantum? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you go from salesman to, to, <laughs> to healthcare and AI to quantum? I mean, that's a, it's, what a journey. I think it's uh, I think it's all about sort of trend uh, identification, really. At the end of the day, you know, I think, uh, and, and I think it's about you know, I'd like to encourage anybody listening um, who thinks perhaps that they're not that technical or that they don't have this kind of competency that you know, it, it, it's always a little bit in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. <laughs> And, and, and you can and you can learn a lot quickly and you can learn it's about learning what's important i think you know what, what's important in quantum is probably trying to understand what the early use cases are going to be um you know try try to understand what is just not possible so you don't talk nonsense you know i think 
I think a lot of people think quantum is just a, an alternative to kind of high speed computing. Um, you know, it's not that simple. It's it, the use cases, you know, are going to um, be things like, uh, you know, whether the sort of biological similarity with the, the quantum effects, as it were. Um, so things like uh, drug discovery or very, very complex logistical problems is an interesting one. I, you know, I didn't I didn't realize that you still with a traditional computer, you still can't plot deliveries across Europe uh, for logistics. They're just too many combinations and, and a quantum computer could probably do that in kind of a few seconds but it would take months with a normal uh, a normal computer it doesn't mean to say you know that quantum is going to replace all uh, conventional computing it's just not the case so it's just learning it's just learning those little yeah. uh, little fa facts of uh, little nuggets as it were it's um, really interesting. I, I find it fascinating. We should probably do another cast on on, on quantum, actually. But we've we're kind of uh, run out of time, and I think that's a good place to uh, good place to just finish off here. Uh, we end we end the podcast with five or six quick fire questions um, that you haven't seen. Not that you saw any of the previous questions anyway, because I was late late sending them. Um, but uh, here we go. What's more important for an early stage startup to invest in? Uh, invest their time in money or network network what makes you a good salesperson tenacity very good have you ever heard or seen a pitch and thought oh my god that's the most unworkable idea ever often <laughs> can you name one <laughs> I particularly remember the guy who said, uh, when I said, why are you a single founder? And he said, I, because nobody will work with me. And I thought, <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, what is the one thing that gives you confidence about the success of a company, uh, about the potential success of a company that you, uh, when you see it? I think it's like a convincing founder who really can articulate the problem that he's solving. He or her is solving. <laughs> yeah. Germany or England to win? England. <laughs> <laughs> By what scoreline? One nil. Or penalties. Penalties yeah. would be good, wouldn't it? Oh, no, not no penalties. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be good for the heart, but it'd be. It'd be I, I think it'd be nice to round it off with penalties after after yeah. uh, our. our uh, um, don't, do it, don't do it to us, Manish. <laughs> Paul Dowling, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast.